Oh my God. It's like magic. Uh, yeah. It's something like magic. Sounds incredible. And I would say that your life has been so full. What has been interesting? Uh, recently, I've been developing a lot of concern about our industry. At the same time, I've got a lot of hope watching what people who are friends of, of yours and I are, are doing. They're exploring the whole people side of, of the construction industry in a serious way. And that gives me a lot of hope. People like Jesse and Jan and Adam Hoots and, and there's many others that are, are paying attention to this in a serious way. But on the, the side of where I'm concerned is our friend Cynthia Sow says, the planet's on fire and we act like that's not the case. We've got a lot of work to do to address sustainability concerns and resiliency concerns. Everything from schools that are inappropriate for places for for children to be given the, the HVAC systems and uh, to bridges that are being inspected in this, there are bridges in the Massachusetts are being inspected monthly because they're that close to failure. And that's a state that has money. You know, imagine other states that don't have money. There's so much work to do. We're at a time where for, I think e and reported this sometime this past month, that five for every five people that are leaving the industry, one person is coming into it. Oh, and we don't have, and we don't have enough people today to, to do the projects. Intel's paying and Facebook in New Mexico, they're paying $4 an hour bonuses for people to stay on their jobs. And it's like, stay with us until the job is over. Don't go moving. And you'll get an extra $4 for all the time that you've been here. Imagine what that's doing in the economy. Right. You know, the upset that that's going to be. And then Intel's announced $20 billion investment in Columbus, Ohio. The biggest chip fab on the planet is what they, they said this week. Like, where are those people coming from? And that's work that requires the best of construction workers to build a fab. It is, I mean, these people, they really do know their jobs. One yeah. of my good mentors, Brian, worked at uh, in the fab for a long time in the u.s and abroad and he told me it's a two-step place where when something the wrong chemicals mix and you take two steps you're dead it's very dangerous uh, work very precise work yeah uh, so you've got to well, be on your a-game for sure as is the construction of the facility it's very precise work because you're talking nanometers in terms of the the etching for the for the circuits it's you you can't have any vibration so these things are built, these fabs are built in ways that nothing, we don't build anything else that way. People are excited about building data centers. Yeah, okay, I get it. But it is nothing like these, these food processing plants and, and advanced manufacturing, biopharmaceutical, all that stuff. And then there's the rest of, then, then there's infrastructure that needs attention. You know, one, one trillion dollars, from what I understand, the current estimate is going to take 40 trillion. So... This is a down payment. I mean, we're not going to get to 2050 and be at only one and a half degrees centigrade uh, over warming, right? We're at 1.1. And look right now, look what's happening. All the modeling that was done on, on climate, it was optimistic. 
Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by Bosch Refine My Site is a cloud-based construction collaboration platform that applies lean principles to enable your entire team to plan, communicate, and execute in real time. It's the digital tool that works in tandem with your last planner system process and puts it all together in one simple, collaborative ecosystem system. This easy-to-use platform is available in English, German, Spanish, Portuguese, and French and can be used on desktops, tablets, and mobile devices. According to Spencer Easton, Scheduling Manager at Oakland Construction, Refine My Site, in my opinion, is the best, leanest tool on the market for the last planet. Here's what our users have to say. We've looked at three other digital scheduling platforms and none compare to the straightforward approach Refine My Site takes. From milestone planning all the way down to daily tasks, this program gives every general contractor and their trade partners meaningful collaboration, accountability, and KPIs. Register today to try Refine My Site for free for 60 days. Today's show is also sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Now, to the show. Welcome to the show, Hal Makeover. Hal, (laughs) it is my honor and pleasure to have you on the show. You are a giant among people leading the industry in lean yesteryear and currently today you're a mentor to many of the people that i look up to and i do have nothing but respect and admiration for the work that you do i just want to thank you right out the gate hal for all your contributions to to spreading the good word in the early days when i first started studying lean hal there wasn't a lot of places to go i couldn't go to like wikipedia in the early days of my starting to study lean and find anything i mean nothing and thankfully uh, your work in Lean Project Consulting uh, with other people like Kristen Hill, you guys were publishing papers and getting the word out on these alternatives to how we can actually build things. And you significantly impact and improved how I built in my career. So thank you again on behalf of so many people that don't even know the influence you've had. Hal, please tell the good people of the EBFC show a little bit about yourself. I've had two two big careers, a 20-year career in manufacturing uh, mostly in the in the computer industry, and with that, some time in software. Uh, I work for both Digital Equipment Corporation and IBM. There's not a lot of people that that got to do that, um, and that's where I I learned about Lean. I was dig, Digital sent about four or five groups of 24 people to Japan, but before to study at the Japan Union of Scientists and Engineers, I was in I think the third cohort. And, um, but to do that, you had five, five months of study prior to that. And it was at the level of grad school kind of work that we were doing it, uh, at DEC uh, to, in preparation for three weeks that we we're going to spend um, in Japan. I got to go back a second time. There was a quid pro quo that uh, the companies that we got to visit a lot of firms while we were there and um, they 
we all came back with assignments and they said, yeah, we want to see the work product from all the assignments that these people have. And uh, they picked me to go back and show the work that I had, that I had done. And I got to spend more time, another two and a half weeks in Japan. Um, then through something kind of serendipitous, I ended up in, um, in Switzerland for ABB. And, um, and then I found my way to uh, the construction industry. Um, one of the things I learned uh, from Fernando Flores, he, do you know who he is? Oh, I've heard of him from uh, Iris told me that he's yeah. still uh, active in yes. the Berkeley area and that he's yeah. somebody I need to talk to for sure. And he'll, and you'll love talking to him. So Fernando was a, a teacher and a mentor. I hired him to uh, come over to Switzerland and do some work at ABB. I then uh, went to work with him after I left ABB and learned uh, learned to coach and learned to consult. Um, and then I happened, but one of the things I learned was I learned about innovation. And there's this little company in Colorado called the Neenan Company. And they held a, a winter conference every year for their, uh, their clients and their supply chain partners, the, the trade contractors, uh, and their employees. And uh, they wanted to work on innovation. They couldn't get any of the, the, the renowned people at that time. They all declined. They said, there's nothing, nothing happening in the construction industry by way of innovation. And uh, after saying no a half a dozen times, I said yes. And I went and did uh, a three-day workshop on innovation. Uh, and in the last half hour, not the last half hour, the, the last two, three, two hours or so, someone complained about, like, okay, this is all great, but we've got this other problem here. Like, we don't treat each other very well. Like, we've got plenty of time for our clients, but they don't, we don't take care of each other. And uh, they asked, could I fix it? And I said, well, maybe. So I invented a little game and uh, taught them how to make requests and promises. And uh, it was from there that a whole bunch of work on my part uh, took off from making and securing reliable promises. It was something that in the industry people were used to taking orders and not making prom they, like they didn't, you didn't have a choice. Right. The man on the site, the super would tell you what to you had to do and nobody would argue with that person. And um, so nobody made promises, but you know, it, uh, it took a while. There was a lot of pushback when I was uh, talking about that. I, I introduced it uh, to Greg, Powell and Glenn Ballard while during the first few years of LCI, we were one of the, Neenan was one of the, the six sponsors of LCI. And um, we put up $30,000 a year, six companies to support basically those two to get that, that launched. And so we got a lot of time with Greg and Glenn and, and uh, I said, yeah, the, the secret about the last planner system is the, the, promising that goes on and 
we were well into it and they said this is crazy no 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 it's a it's a planning system planning and control system uh it took about five years and somewhere around 2002 or maybe three glenn bell has started talking about reliable promising it's like yes that's a central aspect of of the system i mean i've been uh, so lucky to stand on your shoulders hal and use the standard work from lee construction institute to develop some Oh, yeah. Uh, some unique practices that worked. I was working for a right. large general contractor and using that standard work and building on a lot of that foundational work that you were a part of. And I saw your fingerprints on it in many different areas. And I got to tell you, like for people that are listening to this and you've never heard of last planner system of production controls, what Hal is describing here is really an evolution that came from the early foundational work that Fernando Flores did. And I didn't find this out until having coffee with uh, Iris mm. and some other areas. It's not exactly right. The work, the foundational work was done by Glenn Ballard and in, in 92, 91, 92, he made it public in 93. Uh, Glenn, uh, Greg Howell was key in that. We didn't meet. I mean, the last planet system was being used in South America and in oil refinery, plastics, big, big, heavy construction situations up until around 98. And, and then we began shifting into general building. And that's when I met him. Well, that's when you had your influence. I mean, if I, if yeah, I trace back, that's when this, I had it. Yeah. Yeah. You started to influence yep. it and it changed. Yes. And it's, and it's changed again. It's continued to evolve and it's become right. more of a framework now. And the point I want to make to the audience listening, if, if you're just using like what Hal described, where the superintendent just tells people where to be, how much to get done every day, that still happens on the vast majority of project sites. Right. Even, even now in 2022, if you're listening to this in the future, <laughs> it's still very common and typical. But on sites where they use pool planning or last planner system in particular, you have something totally different happen. You have people making commitments to each other and promises and actually being there, limiting the work in progress. And most of those projects, and I'll say every project I've ever done it on, we improve the schedule by 20 to 35% at worst. And at best, we've taken months and months and months off of schedules on jobs that are a year long, two years long, or longer. Even on projects that are five years long, we've taken a year off of the project easily. And that's, uh, that's the power in those making commitments and promises right. and making things visual. But can you tell us about uh, your early days when uh, lean wasn't a thing and it was just quality. And you mentioned that you were, you were in, in Massachusetts getting some diversity training. So I was working for digital equipment corporation. I came out of college in 75, went to work for the bank of Boston in operations research and deck was just exploding. And I went to work for them first in logistics and then in production control. And at 31, so I was three years into working at digital, I had diversity training and it was many days long where everybody in manufacturing went through it. Uh, I don't remember about the engineering part of the company, what, what their involvement was, but, um, I look back and it's like, I can't believe that this really happened. The attention that we had at that time on getting women in senior roles in companies and, and, and we had in our plant, we had many 
women in senior roles. Uh, we had people of color in senior roles. This is, what did I say this? 81, 81 oh. in, in leadership positions. And my friends would think, you know, I talked to him outside of work and it's like, he's like, no, this isn't happening. But um, for, unfortunately, I mean, this is 40 years later, we still don't have enough of this going on. Right. This is still a problem. It's and a serious problem. It's it's a big time problem. And I mean, we just have uh, current news today. Um, it's been all over Twitter for the last week. The Miami Dolphins coach has brought a lawsuit forward against the NFL for discrimination. And uh, even though it's going to hurt his future prospects of getting a job, he's saying that uh, this is an important enough topic to ruin his entire career to get it out there into the ethos so people can start to look at this and deal with this. So I want to transition back into construction, Hal, and we talked about ESG. ESG is environment. The S stands for social, social, and the G is governance. Governance, right. Yeah. Environment, social, and governance. And I was telling Hal before we got together on this call that I'd been fortunate enough to do some research with the Construction Industry Institute in partnership with the University of Houston and their forward-looking future-thinking workshops. And we were looking at ESG in particular. And so we had a series of workshops. There'll be a paper published later this year uh, with the findings of that result. And we found that uh, this is something that is absolutely critical and worth looking at. Like Hal talked about in the beginning, you know, infrastructure in Massachusetts, for example, bridges being inspected monthly because they're so unsafe. We've had in the media uh, here in the United States, some uh, catastrophes with structures uh, multiple times, both in construction and post-construction. It's not going away. And like you said, uh, Cynthia rightly said, the planet's on fire. How long are we going to ignore it? It's a different, sort of a different way to, to come at being responsible corporate citizens. ESG is about being responsible beyond the concern for the shareholder, essentially. I mean, we've got a $1 trillion, $1 trillion um, funding for infrastructure. And the term is used broadly, but we've got significant concerns with infrastructure. From what I've read recently, that's a down payment. That's a very small down payment that we're going to need to spend $40 trillion between now and 2045 thereabouts. And today, I mean, construction's not affordable. There's such a shortage of housing. When you, even when it gets built, it's already out of uh, the economic viability for the people. And you know, we're talking like in, in a lot of places, people are using the term workforce housing, and uh, what they mean is it's affordable for two for a couple that are both employed in good jobs, like a nurse and an electrician, generally well-paid professions. And then we have to build special for that group. That's the workforce out there. Like, what about affordable? We There's nothing, we're not even getting anything close to that. Yeah, I'll just throw some numbers at Joe's talking to a friend of mine that used to be an executive in residential housing last night. And he was telling me in the early 2000s, he was in the Atlanta area, I believe. He said they were building something like 8,000 homes a month. New construction starts a month. And then we had a, a downturn in yep. the economy. And then uh, that 8,000 number went down to 100. So just magnitude. And it just wiped out 
the whole residential uh, construction area in the time. And then we saw the financial collapse in 2008 with uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and uh, the housing, but what people just now call the housing bubble, but it was like a housing explosion, a nuclear bomb of lending just stopped that also affected commercial construction as well. Many companies burned through their backlogs and uh, downsized in the years preceding that. So 2009, 2010, 2011, companies that survived severely downsized and the people that were in those companies that were let go from the industry when some executives were using phrases like calling the herd or mm. eliminating people that were not necessarily performing. And those people never came back. And uh, Hal, you were saying it's worth saying two times because it is so crazy a number. You think you were quoting an ENR article that you read. Yeah. And for every five people that leave construction today in 2022, 2021 through 2022, only one person comes in. That's a net four people leaving. And so this is a major area of concern. The environment that we live in is not like some other place. It's like the where the corporations are and where the people are, we're all in the same system. So let's just touch on governance. You brought this up. So how do you understand it from the work that you had with CII? Yeah, it was so funny. The, the ESG, we had the most fun in workshopping in the E and the S. And when mm -hmm. it came to governance, a lot of people were like, well, I'm not a corporate executive, so it's not my issue, not my issue. The In the early research, it looked like a lot of people are looking towards leadership to take on this responsibility. And when I say leadership, I'm talking about large corporations, like we would consider companies like in the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500, like the top, not 500 companies, but like the top companies, Fortune 500 fortune, you know, 300 companies, large companies, um, even companies operating, especially those that operate in uh, multiple countries, multinational companies. So the sense in the workshopping is we were just exploring the topic of governance, people from construction executives down to, you know, directors inside of companies. And the, the consensus, uh, it seemed to be emerging was that um, there is a, a bit of people being out of touch. And then some of the corporate policies and uh, practices don't align with the E and the S. And the governance was supposed to be an attempt to create policies and practices that do take into account the environment, do take into account sustainability and social impact, and even uh, things that we were talking about with diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. Right. And those and, and some of the large corporations, those things are sometimes just words on a page and they have the policies for equal opportunity employment, but the practices don't match. And so there's become like this uh, us versus them. And in the governance piece, uh, people are like nearly rebelling. I mean, there's been in the media in the last two years, we looked at headlines as well. There have been some CEOs of very prominent companies that have done some things, and uh, there's been social media backlash, and people have been forced to resign from their positions. And so that's the type of stuff that is came out of the governance, and the, the consensus was that the, the shareholders, the board members, 
and the executive officers of these companies need to take a hard look in the mirror. And I'm super simplifying like the research apologies, mm-hmm. University of Houston, but this is just for memory from uh, over six months ago. And these companies that we're looking at in the governance part, people are very much, you can see the, ph- the hidden philosophies that some of these organizations are win-lose and the pie, the economic pie is fixed. And in order for the company A to benefit, it has to be at the expense of either other companies that they're competing against, or has to be the expense of the environments and the communities in which they work. And that's, that's a win-lose philosophy, right? It's totally different from win-win. And so it's a, I don't remember that we got to a solution on the governance part, Hal, but I'm, I'm open to hear what you think about it. So there's a couple things. One is that um, companies go through the routine of, of, thinking, well, what's their mission, vision, and values? Could you name the values of the company? You That's can right. randomly pick somebody. Absolutely in, correct. In a, in a leadership role, and they can't tell you what it is. Yep. That's a governance problem. It's a governance problem when you're, the people that you employ are on food stamps. Like, what is going on with your, your and this is the case at dollar, uh, dollar stores, the dollar store, I mean, the people they have there, they aren't paid very much. They're on food stamps. Is that we've got some, you use the term system. I've, I've been bringing systems thinking to the industry from day one that I was in the industry. And uh, that's what I studied when I was in college. It had a different name then. It was called operations research. But um, yeah, the system is perfectly designed to give us the results we're getting. We have got to change the design at a systems level, not just layer on a new policy, not just say, okay, have governance. It's no, no, the families need to be doing well, not just an employee, you know, it's not just one employee. The kind of action that Digital Equipment Corporation took uh, with their diversity training, it, yes, it was, taking a larger responsibility for what was going on in the world. And that was 40 years ago. We don't have that kind of thing. Now, good news is the, 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 the business roundtable, Jamie Dimon from, um, from Chase, he said, yeah, we need to, it's more than the bottom line. It's more than taking care of shareholders. We have to take care of more broadly stakeholders. And, and that, includes you've got to take care of your supply chain. Companies like Toyota aren't having these kinds of problems. They don't have a con like they're taking care of, of the environment. They're taking care of sustainability. They're taking care of governance. They, they broadly take care of their shareholders and their stakeholders. And they always have. Yeah. I just want to uh, contrast a couple of numbers there, Hal, for people to understand like how big of a problem this is. In the United States of America, 2021 numbers, uh, I'm, I'm just using those, over 40 million Americans are on food stamps, which means that they're at risk you know, of not having food. Um, and and right. countless other cities are reporting homeless populations are doubling in size in just the last five years. And uh, that's a significant number of our population. That's almost 15% of Americans don't make enough money so that they can have food and they're relying on subsidies from the government. That's a real problem that the, they call it the working poor. 
And the other thing that you're you're mentioning, Hal, as you're talking about this, you know, you've there's been a movement for over 40 years of some companies doing pockets of this improvement. And in the construction industry, just on average, large commercial construction companies, companies with a billion dollar backlog where they put in a billion dollars worth of work a year, which is, you know, look at the ENR list. It's basically any company that's on that list is somewhere around that level. So at least a hundred different uh, general contractors and then trade partners. Most of those companies have attrition rates or employee turnover rates at 25% or greater. And a stark contrast, like where Hal said, Toyota doesn't have that problem. He's absolutely right. At Toyota, the attrition rate is less than 1%. It's such a tiny number. The people that go to work there make an entire career there and have a good life there. And it's just, uh, we don't even understand that. We can't even comprehend that. Like I'm, I've seen the stats and I've got friends that currently work at Toyota. And uh, I can tell you people, they're not going anywhere. They, they like working there and they feel well taken care of. And they've contrasted that. They've left construction and gone to work for an automobile company. And they're never coming back to construction. I have more than a handful of friends that have, that have done that. And that's been the case. So just to put some color on what you're saying, Hal, keep going. Thank you. There are firms that in retail that have followed that lead. Walmart now pays, um, I think they're just now above $15 for starting wage. And they'll, you can go to school. They'll pay for you going to school. So come to Walmart and, and get an education. Target has done something similar. There's a lot of stories in, in, where people are paying more. But it's like Starbucks is doing it. Yep, but Starbucks is unionized. People are unionizing at Starbucks. So it's kind of like, it's not enough. There's got to be this great resignation and the, and the great uh, retirement is going on. People are not willing to put up with whatever they have to put up with to earn, whether it's good money or it's not so good money, they're not willing to do it anymore. And that has to change. Absolutely. And this is, this is happening to people across different age groups. I know of a story. Yes. Uh, this was a, a person that had graduated from college last year, went to work for a large commercial construction company, and six days later quit and said at the exit interview, this is not for me. This is not what I expected. I'm not working in construction and had no plan. They had no plan to figure out what they were doing next. They just mm -hmm. said like, this is not going to work. And then uh, upon further review, the, the team was mobilized into their, in a construction site. There wasn't running water on the site yet uh, plumbed in. It was just uh, porta potties and hand wash stations. And that was some of the conditions, which, you know, how, you know, yourself, myself, we've been around this business for a while. That, that was like normal to us, but right. like people, People coming from like nice college dorms or just better conditions or just like, you know, being in civilization, that seems like you're at a, you're at some kind of like wilderness you know, when you don't have running water. And this is during a pandemic where we don't have running water or hot water in a pandemic with, I mean, this is like things that are real simple, but if you're not paying attention to the working conditions for the people, which a lot of companies don't, 
you're going to lose people. I mean, it's, it's an absence of respect. I won't say it's disrespect because that is active, but it's an absence of respect. Marty Walsh, the, the former mayor of, of Boston and now the labor secretary, uh, he shut down, like really early, he shut down construction work in the city of Boston. It, it, did, it wasn't around March, whatever, 8th or 9th, when uh, others started doing it. It was, it was earlier than that. And the CDC had said you need to have warm water or hot water to wash your hands. There's no hot water in porta potties in the city of Boston at that time in the wintertime. There's no hot water in the summertime. He challenged the city. It's like, yep, when there's hot water to wash your hands, then we can go back to work. They had hot water on site within a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> it's, 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 they fixed that problem. And, and, but to think that, and he was, by the way, he was formerly head of the building trades alliance. He was the senior guy amongst all the, the collection of trades in the greater Boston area. Like, and for him, it was, um, he spoke a little bit about this in an interview with the Boston Globe, but he, it was a, it was just taking it for granted. It's like, yeah, well, that's the condition on a job site. He was a laborer. That was the, that was what he did. Yeah. So he knew uh, firsthand some of the he, conditions. I mean, people listening, knew, of course he did. Yeah. If you're listening to this episode and you've never worked in an active construction project prior to 2020, um, this might not be resonating with you. Conditions have radically changed. If you're just joining construction now, um, the conditions that you're probably walking into are just out of this world better than what it used to be. And I'm not saying that it's better everywhere. Right. In it's whole, not. Yeah, it's not. There's still it's a lot not. of places where mm -hmm. um, just, I mean, there's some simple formulas to use for porta potties, you know, just temporary toilet facilities for the construction workers on site that people don't pay attention to. And they let the conditions get out of hand. And we don't allow people spaces to take a break with their food and eat during the day or use the facilities. And this, this is not something that anyone would tolerate anywhere else in the world, but all the built world that we live in, this is what we subject, you know, this part of the people. One out of six people, Hal, worldwide works in construction. That's a huge number of people in the world that don't have good working conditions. So we're gonna have to do this again, Felipe. We this is there's way too much to explore here. There's a few things that we need to do. Stop. We need to stop being alchemists in our of our production systems. Uh, alchemy is not based on on theories, proven theory. There is proven theory for production. All projects, production systems need to be designed based on that theory. Period. We get much more work done and we get much better performing uh, products. We need to use flow as our improving measure. We need to include the workforce, the people who have their hands on material, who are doing the design work, who are using tools. These people are, they're not doing improvement activities in their own work. The Japanese call that Kaizen. Um, but it's through both being doing that, being engaged and growing while you're improving that this workforce is going to get better. And then we need, and, and that takes respect to get that to happen. 
we need as well to have trust. And the industry is an industry of distrust. If you spend any time with contracts, uh, you under fully understand that. We don't trust people to do what they promise to do and what they can't and the, what they contract to do that routinely doesn't happen. So Nick, Fernando Flores spoke at the IGLC conference in, um, in 2021. It was a virtual conference and he was the keynote speaker. And the people who go to IGLC are um, about 40% or so of them are civil engineers with PhDs. This is not your usual group of people, uh, but this is a group of people who are training the folks who, and when you have a PhD, you're, you're going down, generally going down the path of research and or uh, academics. Uh, he said, we've got a big trust problem in the industry. And it's at the center of that is that you have no affection for each other. And then he oh. repeated it. Yeah. Yeah. We have no affection for each other. It was stunning. I replayed it and replayed it and talked to friends about that. There were civil engineers just like shrugging. It's like, what the heck is this all about? It's like PhD, like who are the PhD civil engineers having affection with? It's, it's, <laughs> This is not the con and it, Fernando was actually speaking. Didn't I don't know whether he grasped what the audience really was, but he was speaking at the level of plumbers are not having affection for electricians. Well, they don't even know each other's name, let alone having affection. So maybe if we work on affection, and uh, I think in a really deliberate way, we could do this. We'll get those four things that I was talking about before using sound theory, using flow as an improvement measure, respecting people to the level that they're involved in, in improving their work and themselves and trust. Without affection, I don't think we've got a shot at working on any of those things. And the planet and our future depends on that. That we've got a crisis that we can, that our, that our industry is failing today and the crisis is only bigger. Uh, the that we're kind of stuck in it with this systemic um, distrust that we have that goes into the con the way we contract for things and the the way the contracts are written we are expecting to be screwed over by people who are otherwise be our friends you know it's because it's just business you know um, but the most the striking thing that he said was that we are not going to deal with the issue of trust until we have affection for each other. It's like, yeah, someplace in here, I, early in the conversation, I want to talk about trust and the breakdowns and make that comment about affection. But one of the things I can see, like you and I don't, haven't known each other very long. Uh, I've known about you for a long time, but, and, and I think it's the same way with me. Right. Right. But, immediately we have affection for each other. So it's not like people, strangers can't do this, but we don't, we haven't designed our system or the practice, our everyday practices so that we do it. 
on a job site, most, most people like plumbers and, and electricians who work side by side or in and out of the same space adjacently uh, through the whole project. And they don't know each other's names. That's right. It's, it's, we don't have the practice for being affectionate with people around us. Yeah. And the everyday construction project, uh, for those of you that never had the pleasure or for some of you displeasure working on a construction job, the, the environment is set up on the typical project where hundreds to, and the smaller side, dozens of people to on the very large, large side, thousands of people are working together. Like Hal says, like, imagine, you know, two more people working in the room that where Hal is, or two more people working in the room with me. And we are not by, by design going to just naturally talk to each other and get to know each other. We're going to come in and do our work like uh, very transactionally in the environment and pass on with as little conversation as, as necessary. And if something comes up, like if Hal's, you know, installing that doorknob on that closet and I see a mistake that he's making, the system that is this construction project encourages me not to mention to Hal the error he's making, but actually to call the general contractor and tell the general contractor that there could be a problem with Hal or the more natural thing is just to keep my mouth shut and let the mistake happen without me saying anything. So let's get clear about um, our problem, the industry's problem today. Housing is unaffordable, whether it's single family or it's multi-residential. People are, are, are living in tents or not without tents um, that are existing infrastructure, whether it's bridges or it's schools or uh, roadways, the money has not been there to take care of it. On top of that, we have the challenges of, of sustainability, resiliency, and social justice. And I see those three com completely intertwined with each other. From a sustainability point of view, we have to switch over from fossil fuels to uh, sustainable energy. Where is the money coming from for that? Where is a people coming from for that? We spoke earlier about the number of people who are leaving. You know, for every five people that are leaving, one person joins that, our industry. That's in construction and design and architecture and engineering. I don't know what those numbers are, but I know that. Design firms, they are all looking for people. In fact, there's such a problem. Companies are being bought just for the, because so they can hire. It's called uh, hire acquisition, hire acquisition, something like that. But we've got, to, we've got to address sustainability, but then we've got to address resiliency. We've got, whether it's bridges that can be washed away, they're otherwise fine, but they weren't designed for you know, they were designed for what people thought were 100 year events, but are now happening every five years or, or wastewater treatment plants that sure they can withstand a hurricane or maybe even something like uh, or other significant uh, events like tornadoes. Uh, but they can't, they can't survive the downpours that we're getting in some areas. And so 
there's all kinds of work that needs to be done, whether it's harbor fronts or, or existing infra in, inland infrastructure, that where are the, where's the money and the people coming for that? And I look at all this from a systems thinking perspective. I, I've been, I actually was trained in systems thinking before it was called that 50 years ago in college. Uh, which today I just, I'm, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted that I, I got into that situation. But um, our industries, I mean, systems thinking is a new thing in our industry. And yet it is responsible that, that there were systems thinkers long enough ago at MIT to Jay Forrester is the guy that, that turned a kind of a general systems thinking approach into system, what's called systems dynamics. And a group of people with that began looking at limits to growth and in specific, specifically, and what impacts it would have on the environment. And on, then they predicted this problem that we have that, that we are likely not able to sustain the practices that we have on the planet at one point at above 1.5 degrees Celsius. Unfortunately, they were optimistic because what we're seeing at 1.1 is what we were expecting to see at 1.5. And we're about 1.1 higher right now than, uh, than where we were historically. So we've got to address this. We have to address it for our industry at a systems level, our industry is broken. We continue to contract in ways that will keep us from doing what needs to be done. We spoke earlier about the 50,000 people that are needed in Phoenix, 50,000 construction workers that are needed in Phoenix for their funded infrastructure programs that is not available. And that's just one metropolis that we've, we've got this problem all over. So from a systems thinking perspective, they could make a change and say, yeah, we're not going to use the usual contracting procurement approaches that we've been, we've been historically taking. We could do something that's more like they're doing in the UK and in Australia, they call it alliancing. Uh, essentially it is uh, having very long-term contracts with a IDIQ, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity approach to uh, contracting, and there's just going to be work for 2,000 people for six years, and they could contract for that with some civil teams and some building teams and some infrastructure teams, and then without going through all that contracting, and then all the inspection of all those contracts, right, which is impossible where those resources come for the city, that we do things that can that the systems change, we change the system so that we can bring the people to the table. Some of the biggest, since we spoke last, I, I started talking, thinking about this conversation and talking about it with some of my friends. And I got to the point when I was talking, when we began talking about, we're not designing our production system based on proven production laws, proven theory that's well adopted all over the place, including in the software industry. And people think of the software industry as a production. It's like, yeah, what do you think? We, we benefit from Google having this continuous production approach with new features coming on in Chrome and Gmail and, and others. They're not the only ones, but they're 
they're very reliable in their production approach. They follow the four laws, period. And we're alchemists. It's like we, we're, we're, we're making shit up in the way we produce our put production plans together. It's crazy. And we get what we get. Late projects over budget, people getting injured and worse dying on our on the projects with good intentions. And, and it's ironic when someone dies in a building a hospital. It's like, come on. And that unfortunately happens way too often. Um, and we can make that go away. Just design productions, the production system to give a reliable result, a result that others are enjoying. Whether it's in healthcare, they're enjoying it. Whether it's in software, they're enjoying it. Throughout project production of, of goods and services, and thankfully food, all conforms to the sound production theory. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build. <laughs>